Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Uh, This morning, before we begin, I want to take some time to pray for uh, one of the members of our church, actually one of the elders of our congregation, Bob Belando. Bob is having uh, open heart surgery tomorrow morning uh, at 6 a.m. Bob has had a number of heart procedures over the years and uh, now needs to have this much more detailed procedure. Um, Bob's not with us this morning, not necessarily because he's sick. This has been scheduled for about a month or so now, um, but he's trying to avoid contact with people and he doesn't want to get sick, so they have to cancel, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, But let me just read a portion of what Bob sent to us. He said, I'll be reporting to St. Mary's at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, which means that surgery will probably begin an hour or two after that. The odds are very much in my favor, 95% success rate, but I would appreciate specific prayers for some of the more serious risks, even though chances of any of them happening are remote. These are things like infection, pneumonia, blood clots, etc. And of course, the continued prayer for the surgeon and his team. And so let's go before the Lord for Bob. If many of you know Bob, uh, he leads our prayer ministry. Uh, And you'll see Bob and his wife Judy up here many times uh, receiving people that may want to come for prayer. Um, Many of you, you send your emails to Bob that he then sends out to the team um, for prayer. Uh, During this next period of recovery, six, seven weeks or so, uh, you can send those to the church office. uh, And then the church office has the list that Bob sends out and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so we're going to send out an email tomorrow morning that informs you about that uh, as well. But let's go before the Lord. Father, we do lift up our brother to you. Father, we thank you for his faithfulness. Lord, uh, his steadiness, his consistency uh, in our lives, just that constant example of a man, and uh, certainly with Judy, of his wife, walking with you, Lord, as an example to the rest of us. Lord, we thank you for Bob's commitment to prayer and his confidence, Lord, that every request we bring before you is heard by you. And so, Lord, on behalf of Bob, we come before you now and we pray Lord, for uh, today, Lord, and um, Lord, just settling in and getting ready um, for this rather detailed procedure. Lord, we certainly do pray that you would keep him uh, healthy and that tomorrow morning as he goes in and they check, Lord, his vitals and all those things, that he'll be where he needs to be to have the procedure. Lord, we pray for his surgeon and the anesthesiologist and the nurses and the staff and all of those that will be involved in that procedure, Lord, that uh, even tonight they would have a good rest and they would be strong and thinking clearly and prepared to go in to do what they need to do uh, and that the procedure would go well. Lord, we pray for our sister Judy, Lord, that you might strengthen her and encourage her. Lord, that you would bring moments of sort of a refreshment that flood over her heart as she submits herself into your will, Lord, in uh, those moments of the unknown. Encourage her. And Lord, as a body of believers, Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts for our brother and sister in this time, and that we would love them well. And we pray our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Again, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8 is where we left off uh, the last time. And so we'll pick right up there in Mark chapter 8. 
uh, as we've been doing, digging into the Word of God to understand God's will for each of our lives. When we were uh, together the last time, Jesus was in that area of Caesarea Philippi, about 30 miles north of the Galilee region. He was outside of uh, sort of a, the Jewish community, and he had entered into a clear pagan society, no doubt observing all that comes along with being in a pagan society. And it is there that Jesus asked his disciples two questions. He'd been walking with them now for probably just about three years uh, and ministering to them, talking to them, teaching them along the way as he went, as we looked at that passage in Deuteronomy talks about. Uh, and they've been, they're at this point now where it's like, are you all in or you're not all in? Uh, what have you learned? Who am I? He will say to them. And we saw that there in, John, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. He says, on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave their answers. And then he took the question a step further. And he says, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? And we read that Peter would go on to answer the question. I, I think the guys kind of looked at one another. And finally, somebody like, you know, gave Peter a little shove and Peter had to go forward and give the answer for the group because Jesus then begins to kind of uh, shortly thereafter address sort of the group. It's the group's answer. But of course, it's Peter that is that mouthpiece. And Jesus responds to him. And Peter says what a lot of us in this room have said. We've learned about Jesus. Maybe we grew up and in America. You probably grew up hearing things about Jesus. We've learned about him, but now we've applied it to our lives. He's transformed our lives. So it's not like it's just some interesting information that is out there. It has now become that which informs every aspect of who we are. And notice what Peter says. He says, you are the Christ. And it tells us in the book of Matthew, he adds, the son of the living God. Many of us in this room, that's the answer we come to when somebody might ask us, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, I also know that there are many of us in this room that are still considering that question. And so somebody would oppose the question to you, who do you think Jesus is? And you've got to pull back and you have to think about it. And you say, well, he's certainly somebody, which is what they said in his day. And he certainly seems like he's somebody significant. But you're still weighing who Jesus is. Let me just begin to say this. I think that's okay. Weigh it out. Consider it. Don't just put it aside like it doesn't really matter, like it's nothing significant. Weigh it out and consider, because it is, it was the most important question Jesus ever asked his disciples, and it's the most important question that you will ever be asked. In the history of your life, the most important question that you will have to wrestle with, and it will be the one question on the exam, when you come to the end of your days and you stand before the Lord, who do you say that I am? The Son of the living God. Amen, Tony. Now, look at verse 30. This is what we ended with the last time we were together. Verse 30, I think Jesus does this surprising thing. He says to his disciples, don't tell anyone about this. Who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't tell anybody. That seems odd. It seems, in some respects, it seems like, well, Jesus always was telling people not to say things. Jesus would heal somebody. Don't tell anybody about this. Just go about your way. He healed the blind man a, a few verses earlier, a few studies ago. And he said, don't, don't even go back into the city because everyone's going to ask you what happened. You know, just go home or whatever. But every time that Jesus tells the people not to say anything, he's telling people as it relates to miracles and things like that. Here, it relates to a confession of faith. 
And as I, I think I mentioned as we were leaving here, that's very surprising because later on, maybe six months later, Jesus is going to say, go tell everybody who I am. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And so it seems odd that here these men make this confession and then Jesus charges them not to tell other people. And I, I ended with this last time. I think you can reverentially add one word to your scripture. You shouldn't normally add to your Bible, but in this case it's okay. And I think you can add there, when Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one, you can add on the side in parentheses the word yet. Because the time is going to come when they are going to be commanded to go and tell everyone who Jesus is, but not yet. Not at this moment in time. And the reason why not at this particular moment in time is because as we're going to see in the next story, the next account that we come to, the disciples don't fully even understand what they just said. They said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, what does that mean? They don't really know. They're not exactly sure. They're going to have an incorrect understanding, which is what I want to draw to your attention today. Verse 31 says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this, this plainly to them. Now, you'll notice that phrase there, that the Son of Man, that's another way of describing the Messiah. And so again, Peter, who am I? You are the Christ. And then he goes on, he says, he began to teach them that the Christ must suffer many things. Now remember that the Jewish people had a long expected hope of the coming of the Messiah. They knew that some things about the Messiah, every time that a baby boy was born in Israel, the Jewish people, they would hope because this indeed could be the Messiah. They were expecting that every little boy maybe would grow up and be the Messiah. There was this long awaited hope that the Messiah would soon come. And that this anointed one, this one that God had determined, would come into town, throw off the Romans, establish his kingdom, establish Israel to be the glorious kingdom that God had intended for it to be for the last thousand or so years. where That all started with David and Solomon and so on and so forth. And so the people, they were looking for that. What they were looking for was a militaristic hero that would lead them into victory and a glorious king who would establish his throne. That's what they were thinking. And so as Jews themselves, what's Peter thinking? What's, Paul, or what's uh, John thinking? What are James and Andrew and the others thinking? This is what they're thinking. So you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When are we going to take over Jerusalem? When are we going to set up your kingdom? Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can my one son sit on your left and the other one on your right? You sure you know what you're asking? Jesus said to that mother, because when Jesus came into his kingdom, where was he hanging? He was hanging on a cross. You really want your other son, your two sons to be on my side? You don't know what you're asking. They didn't fully understand even what they were saying when they announced, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter had in his mind a conquering king who would set himself up in glory. And so, notice what Peter does there. Jesus says to him, the son of man must suffer, and so on. Notice what Peter goes on to do. It says, Peter, I'll read it to you, but it says, Peter pulled him aside and he began to rebuke him. Peter pulled Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, put aside that Jesus is God and all this kind of stuff. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. 
You know, so this is like you pulling your boss aside and rebuking your boss or whatever it may be. And that's what Peter will do here. I'll read it to you so you see it. It said, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. I read all that. Verse 32, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke. That word, it means to admonish or charge sharply. Catch that word sharply. So this isn't Peter coming to him and saying, hey, Jesus, you know, you're scaring some of the guys. You know, it's, it's, it's a, he got in trouble. Jesus was scolded. Peter raised his voice and things like that. What's also interesting is in the tense, it says that Peter said it, and then he said it again, and he said it again. He kept on rebuking him. And so I picture it's something like this. Hey, hey, Jesus, could you tone down a little bit of the suffering thing? You're scaring the guys. Well, Peter, I need to suffer. The Son of Man must go and suffer. No, Now listen, Jesus. And it's getting louder and louder and louder. He keeps coming back at him. And he is, if you will, he's putting Jesus in his place. He's saying something like this. Jesus, you're never going to rise to the place of prominence. You're never going to rise to the place of power if you keep thinking and talking this way. He admonishes the Lord. He rebukes the Lord. And as I said, he keeps on rebuking the Lord. The Lord's not getting it. And so Peter will come back at him again and again until he does. And so clearly, Peter and Jesus are not on the same page as far as what this idea of you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God means. And so Jesus is going to have to correct him. Look at verse 33. Now it's the Lord's turn to rebuke Peter. And he does that in verse 33. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, again, picture the scene. Peter, it said, pulled Jesus aside to admonish him. And so you have the 12 disciples there. Jesus is there. Peter, could I I talk to you for a minute? Pulls him off to the side there. Now, then here it says, but turning and seeing his disciples. And so here now, Jesus and Peter are off on the side, but I imagine that the disciples are over here in a little huddle watching because they're the ones that pushed Peter to go say something to Jesus. And so then he turns, Jesus turns, sees them, they all look down, they weren't paying attention, we're not involved, uh, whatever it may be. And so turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter. And he does so in a pretty strong way, doesn't he? He calls him Satan. I've never been called Satan. All right, teachers, maybe some of them thought of me as say, maybe, all right, but I've never actually been called that. And yet Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. What's interesting, we read in the Matthew passage of the event that came just before this, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus then says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And I, if it were me, I'd be like, yeah, blessed am I. You see that, guys? I'm blessed. Now he's saying, get behind me, Satan. And if I were the other disciples, yeah, you hear that? He called you Satan. All right? And so they're having these, this little back and forth. Peter went from way up here spiritually to way down here spiritually. And he went from being blessed to being Satan, essentially, here. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that Peter is Satan. I don't think Jesus is saying Peter is filled by Satan. All right? Rather, he's being influenced by Satan. Ultimately, what Jesus does is he kind of sees through what's going on with Peter and sees the root of it. 
And so in that sense, Peter is kind of being used by the enemy to dissuade the Lord from what the Lord had come to do. I don't doubt at all that Peter's intent was good. I don't doubt at all that Peter was sitting there thinking, Lord, no, this can never happen to you. This will never happen to you. I'll never let it happen to you. Remember what he says uh, at the Last Supper? All of you will betray me tonight. Listen, this is at the garden. All these other folks are going to betray you, but not me, Lord. You know they're schmoes. I'm not. I'll be there with you. And what did Peter do? He pulls out a sword, and he's going to take on the Roman army. All right? And clearly he's going to die in the process of doing so, but he's willing to do so. And so I, I think Peter's intent here is very, very good. I think he wants good for Jesus here. And yet, he's being used by the enemy in that particular instance, isn't he? Look, you don't have to be demon-possessed for Satan to kind of be influencing you and using you for, neg for a negative purpose. And that, that's what's going on here with our friend Peter. And so he, he refers to him as Satan. Again, not saying he is Satan, but rather that his intent is satanic in origin. And ultimately, what, what effect could it have on Christ? Well, it could have the effect of discouraging Christ from what he was called to do, which is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus, you remember, when he was, in the gar uh, excuse me, when he was out in the desert uh, being tempted. And Satan, essentially, Jesus is going out there. He had been baptized. He identified with humanity in that baptism. And he was taking on the role, or he was stepping into the role that he had been sent to, to step into, to be the Messiah. And Satan comes in right at that instance. And it says that he begins to tempt him. And he continually tempts him. We have recorded for us three of those temptations. But as you read it, it's, it was far more than three temptations that were coming against him. We just happen to have three of them. And each of them were essentially like, you just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to any cross whatsoever. And that was designed to tempt Jesus away from his calling. And so now here is Peter being used by the enemy with good intentions, that is of Peter, and he's saying words which may ultimately discourage the Lord from doing that which he was sent to do. Jesus was not going to allow that to happen. Jesus knew why he came. And Jesus knew that the cross was part of the plan of redemption from the beginning of the world. And I think that's so important that you understand that. As you go back and you read your Old Testament, as you read your Bible, the cross isn't sort of this, uh, well, it all sort of worked out for us, didn't it? God is saying to his son. You know, I didn't know things looked a little hairy for a while and you ended up there on the cross, but it all worked itself out. We saved the world. It wasn't as if the cross was some accident. The cross was the plan of God from the beginning of things. And Jesus knew when he had come to this earth, as it says in Mark 8.31, it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and rise again and be killed and then rise again on the third day. Jesus is not saying things are spinning out of control and there's nothing I can do to stop them and I'm going to have to die on a cross. What Jesus is saying is the plan, the means by which the, the world will be reconciled is the cross. And I've come to do your will, O Lord, as it's written in the book of me. He came to go to the cross. You remember in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, just after uh, the Last Supper, Jesus went away from his disciples just off to the side of it and he began to pray. 
a very heartfelt prayer. We have insight into what was going on in the heart and the mind of the Lord. And he, it says this, he says, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He cries out. It tells us in another place that he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Such a fear of what was coming that he began to sweat and blood vessels began to actually break uh, and form where sweat typically would. He followed that particular prayer up with another prayer in verse 40, in somewhere, verse 42, and he says just simply, my father, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So remember the first prayer, my father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. This one, my father, if it can't pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In between there, it seems like the father conversed back to the son and said, there is no other way. You know that. And the son said, well, if there is no other way, if it can't pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus must go to Jerusalem, and he must suffer many things, and he must be rejected by all of those various leaders there and killed, because that is what God's anointed would need to do in order to reconcile the world to himself. And in rebuking the Lord, unwittingly, Peter is being used by the enemy to dissuade the Lord from the purpose for which he came. Jesus knew why he came. It was to end up on Calvary's hill and then arise again three days later. Not some unfortunate accident. I'd like us, if we have our Bibles here, I'm not sure if it's going to come up on the screen because it's a long passage. Would you please turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53? There are Bibles available underneath the seats in front of you that you could turn to. Isaiah chapter 53. Some of you are thinking, I don't turn. I don't turn in Bibles. Turn in your Bible, please. It'll be fun. We'll have a good time. And I think you're going to be blown away by some of the things we see. Isaiah the prophet, it's, it's to your left. It's in the Old Testament. It's about 200 pages or so in my Bible, so it's probably similar in yours. Isaiah 53. Isaiah the prophet ministered to the kingdom of Judah, the Jewish people in the southern kingdom, about 700 years before Jesus. A little bit more, a little bit less. About 700 years before Jesus. And during his ministry, Isaiah recorded these remarkable words. It starts in verse 1 of Isaiah 53. And it says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. When you see paintings of Jesus... And he's like the best looking guy in your class. That's probably not an accurate depiction of Jesus. All right. He was just an average looking dude that would have been in your class. It goes on. It says he was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, it says, he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Where is your God? Remember, it, that's what the people called up to Jesus as he was on the cross. Call out to him, maybe he will save you. Where is your God? And so on. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, that says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
It goes on, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Another word for that, you know it, sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says here, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, and so he opened not his mouth. You remember Pilate when they were accusing Jesus? And he said, you hear what these people say against you? Do you have any defense? Do you, don't you speak up in your, uh, for yourself? And Jesus doesn't speak up. He was led like a sheep uh, to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, striven, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was crucified there with criminals. And then Joseph of Arimathea, you recall, requested his body and temporarily laid it in his tomb because it was not too far away from Calvary's Hill. And so he was, he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Look around the room. Do it. Look. Every person in here that's a Christian, that's you. He shall see his offspring. You're his offspring. You were purchased on the cross, and you are now his child. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. It was the will of the Lord... Uh, the will of the Lord shall prosper, it says, in his hand. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, Jesus said. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Look around the room. If you're a Christian, you are the many that have been accounted righteous. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're sinners. And yet, when God looks upon us, what does he see, Christian? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And as it, goes, as it says there, uh, by, his, by, knowledge, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the, the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, as it says, he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The cross, friends, was no accident. It was God's divine will. And it was his will before the foundation of the earth, before man even sinned. It was the plan that God had in place, that Jesus Christ would come into the world to die, and again to quote Isaiah, that upon him would be the chastisement that brings us peace. And so the cross is the necessary work of Christ. And it's why Jesus now has to explain to his disciples who have just said, you're the Messiah. It's why he has to explain to them, look, in your mind, you're thinking that I'm going to go set up a throne somewhere. And that's coming later on. He says, but the Son of Man must go and suffer and die. And on three days later, rise again. Jesus is death. And you've probably seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the horrific manner to which they essentially prepared him for death. 
That was the ultimate example of man's sin against God. Isn't it? Look, I mean, think about Christ. And you watch that movie, and here's this guy, and he's a good guy, and he's doing what he's doing for people, and he's loving people well, and yes, he's rubbing some leaders the wrong way and things like that, but he's a gentle, loving man to the people. And then they do what they do to him, and when we think about that, he is the righteous one without sin. The cross is the ultimate example of man's sin against God, but at the exact same time, it's the ultimate example of God's love for man, isn't it? Both at the same place. Josh sang, let us, the group led us in that song. Justice and mercy meet there at the cross. Even as man's sin and God's love meet there at the cross. And so while Peter may have thought he was helping the Lord out, he was actually being used to potentially hinder the Lord. And so the Lord rebukes him. Now I want you to notice one other thing about verse 31. It says, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be rejected. But then notice what he goes on to add, and after three days, rise again. We almost miss that, don't we? His disciples often missed that reality. And Jesus, later on, as, uh, after he was raised from the dead, the disciples say, oh yes, he talked about rising three days later. Remember the angels there at the tomb? They said, uh, you know, just as he said he would rise again, as he told you. And they're like, that's right. But they had missed that. But every time Jesus talks about the cross, every time he talks about giving his life, he mentions this idea of rising again. And so it's important for us to sense this. The cross wasn't Jesus' destination. It was the pathway to his destination. He had to go through it to come out the other side, rise again in victory. And so the cross isn't just his destination, but it's his pathway to the destination, which is conquering death. And because he lives, we can live, those of us that name the name of Christ. Well, let's continue on, verse 34. It says, Now calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake... And the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so Jesus has just told the twelve, the apostles, what it was going to cost him, essentially, to be the Messiah. This is what he had to do, go to the cross. Now he tells the disciples what it's going to cost them to be his followers. He says, if anyone would come after me. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means to come after him. Follow after him. Oftentimes, I don't like to use the word Christian because it's just sort of, yes, I'm a Christian, and, and how about you? Oh, well, I'm a Presbyterian. You know, and it doesn't really mean stuff to a lot of people. And so I'd rather use the, what it really means is, are you a follower of Christ? Or when did you begin to follow the Lord? Or things like that. And so to follow the Lord, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and then follow me. Take up his cross and then follow me. You, you should notice this about the Lord as you've been studying through the Gospels. Jesus never sugarcoats things. Jesus isn't some slick salesman. Jesus isn't some guy who, remember Crazy Eddie? Remember him? And at the end of his commercials, you would have 
like all of that real fast talk that was all of the exceptions to what Crazy Eddie was just telling us or whatever, and you still hear that on advertisements and stuff. Jesus never did that sort of thing. Jesus never told us something with his fingers crossed behind his back because he knew he was going to trick us. And so there's no like bait and switch with the Lord. And so the Lord says, if you would come after me, let's get this started right here in the beginning. You need to know you're going to need to deny yourself, you're going to need to take up your cross, and you're going to follow me where I go. And where did he just tell him he was going to go? To the cross, where he was going to die. He put it right out there. He didn't try to trick people. But what he did was he told it like it was, and then he let people deal with that. Let it sit with them. Let them consider it. There's that story where the, the rich young ruler comes to the Lord. And he says, you know, essentially he says he wants to follow him. What do I, what I need to do? And Jesus says, go and sell everything you own, and then come follow me. And it says the man went away sad. Now, a lot of us, I think what we would do is, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Come back, come back, come back. Sell most of what you have and then come follow. We, we would be like upset, worried, bothered or something. Like, and we would, you know, change the, uh, the deal. But Jesus lets the man go. Now, I hope it doesn't tell us. I hope the man went away and said, you know what? It's worth it. I will sell it all. We don't, we don't read it. We don't know. But a lot of people would not. And Jesus was okay with that in some regard. And so he tells it like it is, and he leaves it out there, and he calls this group of disciples, he calls this crowd of people, and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. Now, you remember when Jesus was crucified, first he was whipped and he was beaten there in the city of Jerusalem, and then when that was all said and done, they put a, a cross beam Upon his back, we see pictures where he's actually carrying a cross. The reality is the, the shaft of the cross was probably already at Golgotha, and Jesus just carried the cross beam. And his hands would have been tied to it, strapped around this particular thing behind it. And then they thought it was funny. The Romans thought it was funny. They would tie a rope to his foot, his leg, and every now and again they would jerk it, and he would fall forward, and with his hands behind the wood, fall down on his face. And they would laugh and joke and... And the crowds would sit there, and I'm sure some of them would join in because they're in the in crowd of those that are mocking this poor soul. But I'm sure a lot of other people just sort of kind of pulled back and said, man, it's just wrong what you're doing to this guy. I don't know what he did, but it's just wrong the way you're treating him in these moments. A man carrying his cross was a man going to die. That's the only time and the only result that you would see of a person carrying a crossbeam like that and having it tied to their shoulders in that way. And you recall that it says that in John 19, it says Pilate delivered it over to them, him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which we call Golgotha. He bore his own cross. A man carrying a cross was a man going to die. That's the purpose of a cross, to kill a man. The crucifixion was such a brutal death that the inventors of the crucifixion, which was the Romans, very rarely ever crucified a Roman. They would crucify Jewish people like Jesus. And Jesus wasn't the only guy ever crucified. There's record of some 60,000 people in the time of Jesus that were crucified. And so there were lots of people crucified, but it was such a brutal means of execution that the Romans rarely ever committed against their own people, their own citizens. And so people knew what a crucifixion was. And what the Romans would do is they would use the crucifixion 
for more than getting rid of a criminal. But they would use it as a way to send a message to everybody else. And so you remember that when Jesus was crucified, they went and they put his crime, they nailed it on a little board above his head there. And you see pictures of it and, and things like that. If you like go to a Catholic church or whatever and they have the crucifix up front there, you'll see that little written thing up top there. And that was his crime. And they would crucify a person in a public place. And so Jesus was crucified right outside of the city of Jerusalem on a major highway. He was crucified, if you will, on Route 31, where thousands of people were going to go by. And everybody would see it. And they would put the crime up above his head that said, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And the message that went forth, it was simply this. You could claim to be king of the Jews too if you want. But this is what's going to happen to you. And it was this means by which they communicated to everybody else, you better not. And you better not do these particular things, or this will be your fate as well. When a man was carrying a cross, people knew where he was carrying it, and it was to the place that he was going to die. And so when Jesus says to these people here, these men that are gathered in the crowd, maybe women that are gathered there, he says to them, take up your cross and die, he says to them. Now, we've heard that, and we're like, yeah, I get it. I know what that means. They didn't get it. In their mind, they're thinking, he just said he must suffer, die, uh, suffer and be killed. He's calling us to suffer and be killed. And it's interesting to note, almost every one of the men that were standing there, every one of the men that were standing there in one way or another died for their faith. We know Paul the Apostle wasn't there at that particular point in time, but he would later become a follower of Christ. Paul was imprisoned and eventually beheaded. Peter, the Romans took out to crucify, and Peter didn't feel he was worthy to die a death like his master, Jesus. And so he asked them if they would crucify him upside down, which they did, after he watched his wife be crucified for her faith in Jesus Christ. Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified. Thomas, it is said, was pierced through with spears because of the preaching of the gospel. James is said to have been stoned and then eventually clubbed to death. John, who we have in our scriptures, was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he recorded the book of Revelation, and he lived a life in exile. Every one of these guys that are standing there, Jesus literally meant what he said to them. Take up your cross and die. But not every disciple of Jesus Christ is going to give their physical life as a result of the decision to follow Jesus. It's very unlikely that this room of us, any of us, are going to physically give our life because we're a follower of Jesus Christ. It could happen. But it's unlikely in the culture in which we live. But this passage, it still speaks to us a very important point and a very important lesson. It speaks to us just what is the cost of discipleship. If you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. And so the disciple of Jesus is one who is prepared to die, to die daily for his master or her master's sake. And the person who decides to follow after Christ has to be prepared to deny themselves and live a God and an others-centered life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Would you say that's how Jesus lived his life on the earth? Jesus said, come follow after me. And while Jesus was the only one to do it perfectly... Each of us are called, nonetheless, to imitate him in this call for our lives as well. 
Now remember this, please. When Jesus said these words, he was speaking to disciples. These are words to disciples. Jesus is not saying this message. Deny yourselves, and if you do enough of it, perhaps you'll get into heaven. All right, it's very important that you don't hear that message, because some people think that. You know, I have to live this good life, I have to lay down my life, I have to really suffer, you know, for the things of God, and then I'll be worthy to get into heaven. Those, that message, deny yourself and perhaps you'll get into heaven, those would be instructions for a convert, if you will. And there's an important distinction between a convert and a disciple. Because if Jesus were saying to the convert, deny yourself so that you can get into heaven, then he would be negating everything else we learn about how a person gets into heaven in the scriptures. The scriptures are clear. Getting into heaven is a matter of appropriating the work of Christ on the cross. Looking to Christ in faith and saying, because he gave his life there on the cross, the righteous one became sin so that the unrighteous one, the sinner, can become righteous. It's appropriating the work of Christ on the cross. What Jesus is speaking about in this particular passage is about what happens, if you will, after that initial salvation experience. And I put that in quotations. What happens after a person appropriates the work of Jesus Christ? Jesus is talking about what it means to walk with him each day for the remaining days of your life. Doing that means laying down one's desires. Doing that means denying oneself and walking in a way in which Jesus walked, as it says in, the, in Mark 8.34. Now, a lot of us hearing that, some of us may be in this room hearing that, we might be thinking, well, I don't really like the sound of that. That's not the message the preacher that shared with me gave me. He told me about a Cadillac. He told me about joy in my heart. He told me about peace. He told me about happiness. He didn't tell me about all these other things you're bringing up now. Well, I turn you back to the scripture, okay? So you could say, I think you're wrong. That's fine, whatever, all right? I think my other preacher friend is right. That's fine, whatever. Go back to the scripture and read Jesus's words. Whose words match up more closely with that? The other guy you heard of mine right now? Thank you, all right? I'm not looking for your accolades or whatever. Go back to the scripture, because I could be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the other guy's right. Go back to the scripture. See for yourself. What did Jesus call his disciples to? To take up your cross, deny yourself, and come follow after me. And again, we don't like that. We don't like hearing the sound uh, of the words deny ourselves. We don't like the sound of dying to our daily desires. We don't like to have to say no to our own selfish impulses and yes to the Lord and his leading. I'll remind you then of what Jesus goes on to say. Look at the next set of words here. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And so a person might deduce that a life of denying oneself, dying to oneself, that that's the pathway to misery. That sounds awful. I always have to give in and be nice to other people and let them have their way and be centered on God's will and not my own. That sounds awful. That sounds like a life of misery. That sounds like the way to become the doormat for everybody else. Jesus declares the exact opposite, doesn't he? In that passage there, he declares that denying oneself, dying to oneself is actually the pathway to what life truly is. Again, look at the words there. Whoever would save his life 
look out for number one. I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to get my thing first. Whoever would save his life will lose their life. He goes on, whoever loses their life, lays it down for my sake, will find life, will save it. And so as believers in this life, we're going to continually struggle with the temptation to save our own life. Right, so I don't want to give you like this, like, uh, this sense that, listen to me, folks, I figured this out, and you need to figure it out, and you'll just be happy when you do. Right, we always are going to struggle with what I want and what the Lord would have. Last night, I'm sitting, and it was a long day, and I'm finally sitting down all right, and the TV, and we're watching something, I don't know, and woof, the dog wants to go out. And what did I do? I pretended I didn't hear the dog. Dog, what? I know I didn't hear the, you know, hoping that somebody else will hear it. Because right now, this is where I want to be. This is what I want. I want to sit right here. I don't want to deny myself because everybody else is pretending they didn't hear the dog. None of us want to get up. You know what I'm saying? And so there's this continual struggle with the temptation. Now, I'll tell you, it can get easier when we're in the word, when we're fellowshipping with other people, when we're worshiping the Lord, you, you find yourself in a place where you're like, Lord, what would you have me to do? Here's my hands, Lord. What do you need from me? And so when I begin to notice where I'm not getting up to get the dog, and I don't care, I got up last time, and I find myself getting like that, I know that I've drifted in my proximity to the Lord. And so that's a good time to get back into fellowship with him here. But until the day we die, in one form or another, there's going to always be that temptation to make decisions with self as the determining factor of those decisions. And so whether it's ignoring others in need, because by taking notice of others in need means you're probably going to have to get up off the couch, or even if it's something like pouring yourself into your work, 70 hours a week, you never get to see your family and your friends any longer because you want to buy all those trinkets that you want to have. You can go to you know, two opposite ends here of the extreme. Whatever it may be, pouring yourself into those other things is always going to be a temptation. And one way or another, we'll find ourselves faced with the decision to die to self or to live unto the Lord. There was a book that was published a number of years ago. It was in the late 70s. And that book went on to become one of the top 10 best-selling motivational books of all time. It was entitled Looking Out for Number One. Has anybody read it? That's good. All right. <laughs> on the jacket of the book, the author says this. He says, in simpler terms, looking out for number one begins with the belief that you have a moral right to take actions aimed at giving you the greatest amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain provided your actions don't violate the right of others. In simpler terms, looking out for number one begins with the belief that you have a moral right to take actions aimed at giving you the greatest amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain. And that is the message that has gone on to be one of the top 10 best-selling motivational books in America. Does that sound like the way a lot of Americans think? Does it sound a lot like your default thinking sometimes? Contrast it with Jesus' words. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a prophet a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And so whether we're talking about forgiving people 
that you don't feel like forgiving, we remind ourselves, Jesus said, forgive even as you have been forgiven. Or serving when we don't feel like being served. Or walking away from temptation when every part of our body, even physically, is crying to give in to that temptation. The path, Jesus says, to true peace, true satisfaction, true happiness, and true joy, paradoxically, is in dying to oneself and taking up our cross and embracing the way of Christ. Jesus goes on, he says these last words. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think those words speak for themselves. But notice one thing that Jesus communicates. Even as Jesus has been saying that the Son of Man must go down to Jerusalem, suffer, and die, notice in light of all of that, he still speaks here of the day when he is going to come in his glory. It says there in 38, uh, of him will the Son of Man also, uh, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so in light of his coming suffering and the cross, Jesus never forgets the fact, and he never loses sight of the fact, and he's absolutely certain of the fact that in the end there will be victory and triumph. And so Jesus feels no need to fight to preserve his life. And he calls his disciples to approach their life in the exact same way. Lay down your life, because in laying down your life for God and for others, you truly find life. Amen, good friends? Amen. Amen. Let's pray that the Lord will enable us this week to walk in that way. Father, we delight in you. Lord, we, uh, we acknowledge that these words are sort of the antithesis of our natural inclination. And Lord, uh, even from a young age, uh, we are inclined to just look out for number one, for ourselves, and how will all of this fit into what I want for myself? And Lord, you are uh, plainly clear here. That true life, true happiness, true joy, true peace, ultimate fellowship with you, harmony with you, walking uh, in harmony with you comes as we lay down our lives. We make our way through the cross, so to speak, the path of the cross, that we might live in resurrection power. And so direct us, Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.